welcome to the DSO Connect podcast. I'm Casey, and today I have with me the lovely Miss Holly Brucker. Hi, Holly. Hi, Casey. How are you today? Oh, pretty good. Getting ready <laughs> for opening up the studio next week. So yeah, do you start? You start this upcoming week. Yep, we start September fourteenth. Yep, same. So this podcast episode will drop on the fifteenth. We're recording today on the 10th, so when your li- listeners, when you're listening, we will already be in full swing of classes, <laughs> but right now, uh, I don't know about you, Holly, but I'm like an absolute mess trying to get everything ready for classes to start and feeling very overwhelmed. <laughs> yeah, I, it's not too bad. I'm just trying, I think my biggest thing is just getting the studio ready, finishing up, you know, yeah. the disinfecting and taping all the floors. Yeah, that's where I'm at too. It's a lot of work. How's your enrollment looking? It's pre- it's pretty good. Um, numbers really? Are, yeah, numbers are lower than usual, but uh, I did raise prices on my classes, so mm-hmm. the amount of money I'm making is almost the same. So I I almost hit my goal of you know the same amount of revenue as last year. That's awesome. Yeah. So that 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 is great. A big load off my shoulders. <laughs> yeah. No kidding. My enrollment right now is about 50% of what it was this time last year, and I am slightly freaking out. Oh, geez. Yeah, I did raise my prices, though, so that will certainly help. But, um, well, yeah, next, it's not... Uh, Casey, next month in the member vault, um, our monthly topic for October is going to be how we can do other events and classes to raise money outside of our you know, monthly revenue. Oh, okay, good. Well, I look forward to that. I will definitely be paying quite a bit of attention. (laughs) (laughs) All right, well, let's get to the topic at hand today, which is competitions. Our last two episodes, if you haven't listened to them, jump back to episode 33 and 34, um, where we, uh, Robin and I, interviewed Chasta Hamilton, who wrote the book, Trash the Trophies, How to Win Without Losing Your Soul, all about how she transitioned her studio away from doing competitions. Um, And Holly runs a wildly successful competition program at her studio. So we're going to kind of talk about the other side of that coin and how Holly runs her competition program to avoid all of those pitfalls that um, that Shasta was talking about in her book and that we discussed on our two episodes. So before we jump into all that nitty gritty, Holly, tell us about your dance journey um, what your what your training was like growing up? How you came to open uh, or to purchase your studio? Because are you the third owner? Is that right? Uh, the second owner. Second owner. Okay. Yeah. How you came to purchase your studio and then where you're at now? Okay. Um, well, I owned my dance studio for 25 years. Um, I came from a very competitive dance studio. I was you know heavily involved in dance competitions. We would go into, we're about an hour, an hour and a half from New York City. So we went into New York City a lot for dance competitions and even to take classes. Uh, It's so funny because when I first started my dance studio, I took it over from a lady who was like basically one of the founding, you know, members of dance studio owners in our area. Mm -hmm. And they never did competitions before. And it's so funny because... I went in there and I really wanted a competition studio. So it was probably like the second year that I was owning the studio that I took some girls to competitions. And, you know, you're so naive. And I'm like, oh, my God, my girls are so good. And really, they probably (laughs) sucked. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, these parents just did not understand anything about the competition world. They did not they would come with different colored tights and they're like, oh, who cares? It doesn't matter. You know, they, they'd come with different colored shoes. Their hair would be right. The makeup wouldn't be right. And I kept thinking to myself, you know, I look at these other dance studios at competitions that were so put together and their dances were so good and, and they were winning. And I'm like, I want to be that studio. So throughout the years, I think the key thing is you have to know what you want your studio to be like. And you have to set your rules. And, you know, once I did that, I lost those people that weren't a good fit for my dance competition studio. And I actually started gaining the customers that I wanted. 
though. It was the mm. customers that, you know, fell in line with, you know, your hair has to be this way, your makeup has to be this way, we're going to rehearse this way. And they didn't ask questions. And so over the years, I kind of built that studio that I wanted. And, you know, it's so funny because a couple years ago, we were at competition and I was there with one of my teachers that was with me almost from the beginning. And my girls were winning and they looked so good. And I looked at her and I'm like, we're finally that studio. <laughs> Yay! How long, how long would you say it took to get to that, to that point? Um, it was probably a transition over maybe about five or six years. You know, yeah. I, it, it is a slow and steady process. It's not just like you wake up one day and your whole studio transforms to, you know, how you want it. But you right. know, that, that holds true. Like for me, it was the competition. But I mean, it holds true for anything. Like what kind of studio do you want to be? And, and you have to hold true to your values and your, and your core. And, you know, people will follow you. You, you might lose people, mm -hmm. but, you know, those are the customers you don't want in the first place. Oh. Right, and those and those might not be the right customers for your studio, but they might be the right customer for the studio owner around the block, and that's and that's okay too. Right, and every year we hold auditions for our dancers, and it's so funny because we don't give them numbers, and we kind of make a big deal out of auditions. And there are girls that don't make it in auditions, or there are girls that get put back into a level because you know maybe they're just not progressing at the the same rate as all the other students and it's so funny to see like some of my best dancers come into auditions and I hear them like like all like grumbling in the background and they're like I'm so nervous what if I don't make it and you know like we're like laughing on the inside like honey of course you're gonna make it but it's so good to have a piece of humble pie for the girls <laughs> yeah absolutely because you know like we went to this one competition and we went year after year and it got to the point where like our girls were winning everything all the time and then one year we went to that competition and i heard the girls saying something like oh we're going to be winning this year and you know like that kind of rubbed me the wrong way and so like next year i'm like okay now we're going to up it and go to a harder competition <laughs> and and we went to the harder competition and not all the girls won and they were you know upset and i'm like guys that's that's the way it goes. Then you just have to, my whole like philosophy is just work harder. Don't make excuses, work harder. And you know, it's funny cause you, you know, you talk about competitions and I had a dance instructor one time and she came from a predominantly ballet studio and they didn't do any competitions. And she said to me that when she went to college, most of the girls in the dance program came from competitive studios. And she said, that there was just something there that really pushed those girls even harder and farther. And she wished that she competed when she was younger, that she would have that drive. So I think there's a big benefit to doing competitions. Yeah, definitely. I noticed, I noticed something similar, or I at least noticed a huge difference when I went to college, um, coming from a non-competitive studio and then going to a, co a college dance program where a lot of the students who started along with me in my freshman year did come from competition studios. And I definitely noticed a huge difference in the way that they, the way that they dance. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't necessarily that like their technique was better or their uh, performance quality was better than mine. Like, you know, I was obviously still a strong dancer, um, but there was just some, there was just a difference there. And, and it made me very curious. <laughs> yeah. There's, I, I always call like, there's like, just like a little bit of an edge, a little bit of a, mm -hmm. push, you know, try harder, but I think there's a lot of benefits to competitions. The girls have to work as a team and, and they have to work as a team under pressure. Um, I feel like they push themselves harder. They find more inspiration because when you're going to competitions, you're seeing dancers that are better than you. And I think right. like, especially like the, the younger girls, they look at that and they're like, oh my gosh, I want to dance like that one day. And, yes. and they, I always see the kids coming back to the studio, like wanting to work harder, wanting to, you know, be better. Um, I feel that having the video uh, critiques is a great thing. Uh, a lot of the competitions do have video critiques that you, you're able to watch uh, the dance and hear the judge what they're saying. So you know exactly at what part 
the the dancers doing something wrong and I think this mm -hmm. is great for the kids to watch because you can look at them and say look at you're not straightening your back leg you, you can see it right there and right usually my, usually my girls are like oh you're right I'm not um, so I mean there's definitely like a learning curve with that and I mean us as teachers I don't think we should sit there well first off let me go back there are some competitions that are really crappy okay they have yeah. Yeah, there, there are just like anything in the world. There's good stuff and there's there's bad things, but there are some competitions where you know the judges are not qualified. You know where it's just not fair, and th th they say stupid critiques, not really critiques that would help you know your dancers. I think it's a balance. You just have to find the right competition for you, and right, you know, right. You have to find the right competition with good judges. Um, because I think it's really important that these kids hear these critiques, um, you know, from other people. Because yeah, and, getting and, a different perspective, and I imagine a lot of times the critiques that the judges are giving are the same feedback that you and your staff have been giving your students all right. along. But right. hearing it from someone else really makes a difference. And and I also think too, like seeing it, like if they see themselves doing it wrong, then you're like almost like the light bulb clicks. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and to me, so I take my my performing company to conventions, and oftentimes it's a convention that a, a convention competition weekend, mm -hmm. and we don't participate in the competition part, but we take the convention classes, and then oftentimes we'll stick around for the first hour or two hours or whatever of the competition just to watch and see you know what what's going on there and I think the experience of being in the in these huge ballrooms dancing with you know a gajillion other dancers and then watching those same dancers on stage to see how they're working in class and what that translates to on stage I think that is a because you know they recognize some of the oh yeah I was dancing next to her in that Mm -hmm. in that uh, in that lyrical class or whatever so they see what the work ethic looks like in the ballroom and how that translates into what it looks like on stage and I think that is a really good experience for dancers it is it definitely is you know and these girls also I think like some of the other benefits of competition you know they feel they have to strive for perfection and a big thing is they have to learn to lose and yeah so how do you do that how do you teach your 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 competitive dancers to lose gracefully or to learn from that experience well okay here's a good example so i have i have a team that they win a lot and and they're extremely really good dancers and so the one time we went to competition and they didn't dance their best so they came back home and you know i said to the girls you know they right, right away they want to make excuses well they probably dance longer you know more hours than we do and you know maybe their studio is bigger and, and therefore the competitions you know give them make them win more or something you know excuses but like what i always tell the girls i said you know what they deserve to win their you know their feet were pointed their turns were you know the timing was awesome they deserve to win you guys did this wrong that wrong this wrong that wrong and this one girl goes well she goes at least it was fun <laughs> and i look at her and i go we're not here for fun your parents are paying <laughs> for you to go to competition and they want you to win because winning does feel good losing does not and she's like miss holly that's kind of rough i said well it's the truth you lost because you did not work hard enough the other team won because they were better than you and it's like you have to let these girls know because they want to come up with excuses of why it was everybody else's fault why they didn't win when in reality it's your own fault and you have to you know you have to take responsibility for that and and i think that's a good lesson that these kids need to learn because that's how it is in life you know you go for a job you don't get the job work harder right I, I, and and make the best situation about out of the circumstances that you're in whether or not that means you're dancing 10 hours a week or 20 hours a week you still have to work hard with the training that you're in right and and i said i said to them if your parents want you to have fun you could go to the local park for free 
You know, <laughs> you're, you're going into a competition. And why do you go to competition? You work to win. And that's the point of competition, bottom line. But, you know, the funny thing is, I hear, and, and I'm going to say this, I hear a lot of dance studio owners, you know, they don't, or teachers, they don't like competition because, you know, they come up with every excuse in the book. You know, oh, the sexy costumes are the ones that win, or oh, you know, the bigger studio wins, or like they make every excuse why their kids didn't win. And in all mm. reality, you need to start looking at your kids. You need to start perfecting your technique. You need to start, you know, is there, are they emotional when they're on stage? Are they portraying their emotion like with the dance? So like you need to look at all those little cleaning choreography bits and, and look at yourself and don't worry about what other people are doing. That's like the biggest right. thing. And even like owning your studio, who cares what other dance studios are doing? Do, you do you, you know, it's like, <laughs> and that makes you successful. And it's the same thing. It's the same thing with competitions because like I said, when I first started and my girls weren't that great, I was that studio owner making all those excuses why my kids weren't winning. When in reality, it was me. And, you know, it was a pivotal factor that changed everything when I just started focusing on my dancers, my technique, my choreography, and it started to pay off. And I, I, and I think it's like that any, with anything in the world. And I think competition teaches that. Yeah. So you have been involved in the competition world for how many years now? Because you, obviously you started out at, as a student competing and now as, a, as and I'm sure you were a teacher compete, uh, taking your students to competitions and now you're a studio owner taking your students to competitions. So how long, how long has that been all been going on? Well, I've been competing since I was about nine years old and okay. I'm 47. <laughs> Nice. So that, that's a awesome. Long time. A long time. I've been. Have a, you have you ever judged? I've never judged, and and quite honestly, I don't think I ever could because I I'd probably go insane having to sit there all day <laughs> watching dance after dance after dance. Yeah, it's not. I can't imagine that that is a uh, an easy job for oh, sure. I, it's definitely not a good job. I would definitely need like lots of wine. <laughs> Well, Holly, you need lots of wine regardless of what you're doing. (laughs) That is true. (laughs) Holly's one of our primo winos here in DSO Connect. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. So have you seen any changes or shifts in the dance competition industry in those 30 odd years? How has, how have things changed? Do you think they've changed for the better? What have you noticed? Well, you know, it's funny because back when I used to compete, it was first, second, third, and then you got nothing. (laughs) So, yeah. So, I mean, I was so used to going to competitions and we go to huge competitions in New York city, like dance masters, um, of America, we'd go to their nationals and you would have like hundreds of kids, you know, competing for like solo titles. So if you made it into the top 10, that was like an honor, you know, cause most people walked away with nothing. So I think competitions have really changed as far as their award system, because again, in anything, everybody gets a trophy, but I, I tell the kids that they need to look more at their actual um, placement, like whether it's a gold, silver, bronze, if it's platinum, diamond, double, triple diamond, you know, the, all those dumb names that they give all the, right. all the um, adjudicated awards. But they need to look at exactly what adjudication they received. And the biggest thing is the overalls. And, and again, like any competitions, you go to a smaller, not so great competition, you don't really have any competition. It, it's like if you're in your category, oh, I was the only one in my category. And then it's like, oh, I won first place in, you know, senior jazz large group. And then like second place in overall. And meanwhile, you're competing against like three people. <laughs> right. So, I mean, do your homework when you go to competitions. It, it's, it's best to go to large competitions that you do have competition because that's the whole point is competing against other dancers. We have a, a local competition that um, just about 
a lot of our dance studios in the area go attend and our senior solos there'll be like 130 kids in senior solos um and that's like tap ballet jazz like all right. different genres but so when they do a top 20 and you get in the top 20 that's like an honor out of 130 yeah and, um i just have to brag i did have my student one first place in senior solo <laughs> Good for you. <laughs> but um, so that was really an honor. <laughs> but those are the type of competitions that, you know, you really want to look at to attend because you want to make sure that there is competition that your kids are going to or else there's no reason to go to a competition. Right. If you're going to be the top dog of the whole experience, or the it's not going to be or the only dog. <laughs> if it's just you and a bunch of cats. <laughs> <laughs> then it's not really worth it. But I imagine if you're if you're brand new to competing, maybe starting out with smaller competitions would be good just to kind of get your feet wet and not be so overwhelming of an experience right. for your students. What do you think about that strategy? And you know, you, you really want to make sure that you do place your kids accordingly. I, I know a lot of people talk about like, oh my gosh, you know, we're in the rec level and the, all these, you know, competition girls that are like should be in the higher level are in the rec level and they're winning everything uh, you know you want to put your kids where they're gonna to have to try like humble there's nothing wrong with humble pie for these kids I mean I think right. it's, good, it's good for them to lose too so but on the flip side I've seen many competitions where kids that should be in the rec level their teachers are pushing them up into the higher competitive level and I feel like that does nothing for those kids either um, you, you do need a balance. I think you need the kids to feel good about themselves and win occasionally. And then you need to take them to harder competitions and give them a kick of a little humility. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> but, I mean, you need a balance. Like when we pick competitions, sometimes we'll pick maybe the first comp competition will be a little bit easier competition. And then by like our third competition, we like work ourselves up to like the harder ones. So it's like more of a challenge. I mean, there's, there's a strategy to all of it. <laughs> yeah, that makes a lot of sense to, to kind of design your year in that way. Mm -hmm. And when I first started competitions, I did take my kids to, you know, the rec level and then finally moved up into the intermediate. And, and, you know, we actually had a competition one time where it was the first time we went to this competition. So I didn't know, like, kind of what the level would be like. So I put, mm -hmm. this was like quite a few years ago, I put my girls in the intermediate level and they were like winning everything. And I didn't think like, I thought there was competition. It wasn't like they were just blowing everybody away. And I got called to the, to the back of the room and I was told that next year I have to move my kids up to the higher level because the judges mentioned that their technique should have been in tune with like the advanced level so I mean that was good like the competition did well that's that's good that they're yeah that they're kind of trying to regulate that yeah right. that's definitely and and it wasn't like we were you know trying to pull one over and put my kids because it was probably at that point that it was at that pivotal point where my kids were just transitioning to you know better dancers so like mm -hmm. I said it was the first competition I went to I kind of wanted to play it safe and but I I you know, was like, okay. And the next year we went to that same competition and we went into the higher level. So, I mean, there yeah. are good competitions that, that do that. Um, let's talk about studio drama. Yeah. How do you handle competition related drama at your studio? And, and maybe tell us a story about <laughs> something about a time when some drama erupted and how you handled it. Well, I mean, dealing with females in general, you're always going to get some kind of drama, no matter sure. what you do. Um, I, I honestly am pretty lucky. I, I feel like I don't have a whole lot of drama. I, I kind of nip it in the bud. And I always tell my kids, Foc you know, you do you, focus on you, and don't worry what everybody else is doing. Um, I think my biggest drama in the studio is all my competition kids take solos. So I think that's a hard thing because they have to work as a team and then they have to compete against each other in their solos. Right. So it's, it's kind of hard to flip-flop back and forth. And sometimes I feel like my kids 
start pulling apart on the team because they're focusing on their solos. So that's where we always have to sit them down and be like, team is first, solos are add-ons. So we just try to you know, do more events to try to um, make that team stronger. But I, I think that's like, that's like our biggest drama and challenges. I mean, of course you always have parent drama and you always have drama about placement. And you know, I always tell these parents, they'll say something like, oh, my child should be in you know, the diamond level class because we have um, our levels are pearls, rubies, amethyst, and diamonds. And they're like, oh, but they did so well in their dance. And I, I tell these parents, I'm like, yeah, but you didn't see them every day in class like we did and the struggles so that they were able to perform at a higher level. <laughs> and if we have to work right. that- Right, you didn't also, see the- Right, if we have to work that hard in class to make them look good on stage, our diamond level, our highest level, they don't have to work that hard in class. <laughs> so yeah, a lot of times the parents don't understand about you know the placement and like what, it, what, what is required for the higher level placement for competitions. Do you have any advice to other studio owners who are facing those similar challenges with parents? Um, I found throughout the years that if you give parents um, examples, like say, look at your daughter do this, she, she's doing this wrong. Like she's not pointing her toes. Her double turns aren't, um, the timing's not right on the double turns. She's falling out of her double turns. Like if you give them actual examples, because the parents don't usually know a whole lot about the technique side of dance. Right. So if you give them exact examples, a lot of times the parents can't really say, well, that's not right because they don't know, you know what I mean? They don't know the, the dance technique and what we're looking for and, and how we have to really work these girls in class to get them to do, you know, perfect double turns for their performance. Yeah, it's harder, it's harder for them to argue with like solid facts and clear cut examples, I imagine. Right. Right. And, and a lot of times like the parents might say, Oh, okay, now I understand. And then, and right there that cuts mm -hmm. out that drama, they, it cuts out that drama of the parents. Right. Absolutely. Let's talk costuming. Uh, I know costuming oh, is certainly <laughs> a hot, hot topic in the dance world about appropriateness of costuming and what's safe and what's not safe and what's appropriate and what's too risque. Do you have a general rule of thumb or are you more on the pushing it side or are you more on the conservative side? Where do you fall? Um, I am on the pushing it side. <laughs> 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 I will be quite honest. Um, I don't know. I look at it from a different point of view. I like to see my contemporary dancers in two pieces. I don't like to see tights in a contemporary dance piece. Um, but you know, I have, I think the costume should fit the dance. So if I have a sultry jazz number, I am not putting my kids in two pieces. You know, I'll put them in, you know, tights with, with shoes and something more respectable if I know the choreography is going to be a little bit if, if the choreography is going to be a little bit on the edge then I make sure I costume them very respectful now when you have oh interesting I like that now when you have like contemporary choreography that's like emotional then I'll go a little bit on the edge as far as like you know the bra top and you know the skirt or the or just the plain leotard because they're not doing sexy choreography you know what i mean and right and and i feel like if if the choreography is appropriate then the costume won't look inappropriate i don't yeah, know yeah that's such an interesting way of, of looking at that i've never thought of it that way that I makes honestly, a lot of sense to you know, balance I, it out that way Yes, and I honestly don't think when you put a, a, a kid, and, and also too, let, let me rephrase that, my younger comp teams, they usually don't go around in two-piece fringes and, and everything else. So, I mean, we do dress our younger kids very appropriately, and we usually do um, sweet dances. Like, for instance, I had, mm -hmm. um, now my younger team is from probably like eight, nine, ten years old. Um, they did a tap number two, like we did nine to five. 
and we had them in like Starbucks costumes. So they had like little Starbucks with like little froofy skirts and like they had Starbucks cups. So like we do like cute themey choreography for like our younger kids. Right. But um, for our older kids, if they're in like a two piece and they're doing like appropriate choreography, then nobody's going to look at that costume and say, oh, my God, they shouldn't be up there in that. I, I think it, I think it's a, that, that's a big thing. If you're, you know, if you're doing inappropriate choreography, it really doesn't matter what you're wearing. It's going to look inappropriate. <laughs> I mean, you could be wearing a, a burlap sack, and if it's a six-year-old gyrating and twerking, then it's not that burlap sack is going to look inappropriate. <laughs> right, right. What age do you start to transition from one-piece into two-piece costumes? Um, we don't really have like a set age, like mm-hmm. we do that. I mean, like, and like I said, I had a dance once where they did, um, I don't know, it was like polka dot bikini, like California girl type thing. And they had the two piece bikinis, like, and, and they were cute, froofy, like roughly things. And it was age appropriate choreography. And mm-hmm. th- that looked very cute. And not one person said one thing, but I mean, I don't normally put a two piece on like probably under 10 years old. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. That seems, that seems fair and reasonable. Yeah, I mean like, unless of course, they're doing some kind of theme dance where it would, you know, be like that. We had, we had- Mommy's about a bikini and you wear a bikini. Right, and and you know also too, like if, if the girls are gonna be wearing two piece um, costumes make sure they have the appropriate undergarments on like that's Mm -hmm. that's a huge thing too we had um a dance and it was so cute it was my older diamond group and they had a dock and it was under the boardwalk and they had these like retro bathing suits that were the high-waisted um polka dot bottoms with like a red bikini top well what i did is i made the girls wear um the tan bra like almost like a crop top bra under the bikini top so it was you know nobody was showing cleavage nobody was showing you know like you have to look at that stuff when you're costuming your dancers and you know they weren't they were doing it was a sweet because it was under the boardwalk so it was a sweet dance and they won nationals with that dance and and not one time did one person say that was inappropriate interesting I, at one point when I was, before I opened my studio, I, I picked that, or actually I think the song was picked, it was, it was when I was a much younger teacher and we had like a, a, a summertime or a beach theme for the recital and that song was picked for me for my class um, and I actually had a lot of parents uh, express concern about that song because of the line, we'll be making love. <laughs> That's in that song, I think, which I could like. I could totally see. Did you edit that out, or how did you deal with that? Um, I think that was edited out. Yeah, but like I said, I think it's just really important that your choreography matches your costuming, and it's all appropriate. Yeah, and that you have that balance. You have that balance because you can have a two-piece costume that doesn't look sexy, that doesn't look like you're, you know, um, I can't think of the word. <laughs> Revealing everything. Yes. <laughs> putting, putting the dancer on display. Right, right. And ex- exploiting, yeah. Because we do a lot of, we do a lot of theme dances um, and we mm-hmm. use a lot of props along with it. So it's almost like, the, and I always tell us, the dancers are telling a story. And what story are they telling? Right. right. What have been some of your most successful theme and prop usage dances? Um, definitely the docks. Like, because we use those yeah. in, in quite a few dances. We had uh, bleachers that we've used quite a couple times. I'm trying to think what else. I don't know, we, we have a lot of props that we use. My brain automatically goes to, where do you keep all that stuff? Do you have a large storage area in your studio? We have, oh, this is a headache. So we keep all the props. We have a big basement. And 
a month ago we had a tropical tropical storm come through and right next to our studio is a creek and it totally overflowed our back parking lot was like a river and my whole basement got flooded so Ugh. we actually went through and pulled out props like bigger props that were able we were able to save and you know power wash them and let them dry and i actually just took them to a, a storage center that i'm paying for now um and oh, I, just, wow. I just shoved them in there um yeah because it was we lost i just lost a lot of props <laughs> oh that's so frustrating i'm so sorry yeah but as i always say the show must go on <laughs> right as we all say, I'm sure. Yep, exactly. <laughs> so one of the other issues that, that, that Chasta discussed in her book and that we talked about on our last episodes of the podcast is the, the expense of, of, of being a competition studio. How do you justify that expense or what do you do to make it more palatable to your parents? How do you, how do you, what do you do to make it accessible? Well, at the beginning of the year, um, all our, our comp team has to pay a hundred dollar deposit because as you know, a lot of these, almost every competition require deposits and pre-registration like in the beginning of the year. And it's, it's gotten, which I kind of don't like, but it's gotten really bad over the years because maybe there are more people going to competitions, but they just require upfront deposits. So I make the parents pay a hundred dollar deposit. And then we just um, apply that to their account when it comes time to, you know, pay their balance for competitions. Uh, we do have fundraisers and we have a couple moms that are in charge of setting up the fundraisers, running the fundraisers. Um, we have one person that overall manages everything and then they pick uh, moms that volunteer to run that fundraiser so that's just so not one person the burden doesn't fall on one person to mm -hmm. you know run everything so we do probably about four or five fundraisers throughout the year and oh, wow. um, some of my some of my comp students hardly pay anything for competitions because they do participate oh. in fundraisers and maybe each fundraiser they might get a couple hundred dollars towards their account. That's great. What sort of fundraisers have you done that have been successful? Um, I think our most successful one, it's called Charity Mania. And there are tickets that you sell and there's like football ones, there's Super Bowl ones, there's basketball, baseball, you know, World Series. There's just like all sorts of tickets. And like say for instance, the football, it they give you um, the teams and they give you numbers and then based for how many weeks football is um, whoever wins <laughs> I don't watch football by the way <laughs> me neither I couldn't tell you as you can tell <laughs> but based <laughs> on who wins um, you could win like ten dollars so oh. um, everybody like sell so many of these tickets because you know people at work and family members and stuff and a lot of people raise a lot of money selling the tickets for Charity Mania. It's a really good fundraiser if, if anybody's interested. <laughs> is it like gamble? Is it like sports betting? Well, maybe. <laughs> no, on, on the cards, you're paying for these like music digital downloads, but then you have an opportunity to, to like win stuff. Oh, so interesting. I, yeah. Huh. And where does the where does the charity aspect come in? How is it tied to charity if it's called Charity Mania? That I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> or is it just like you you the per, the organization hosting the fundraiser? You are the charity. I don't know. Maybe You're that's what it is. Read into that. <laughs> I'll have to look like, into that. <laughs> I know, like our like I know in our area, like a lot of the um, the school sports they'll do the charity manias as well for like fundraisers. Cool. So, I mean, it's a good fundraiser. And people get really into it. Yeah, it's an easy fundraiser. Um, we also have like frozen pizzas that we sell. Um, we have, uh, oh, bath bombs. This lady around us makes bath bombs and that's great for over Christmas time. People buy bath bombs for like, like presents. They're like $5 a bath bomb. So I love that. That type of fundraiser. Um, 
like there's like candles, like sell candles, like, you know, typically like that type of stuff. Yeah, yeah. And do you, so, so you have parents who organize the fundraisers and manage it. You don't have a hand in that. I don't have a hand in that. No. That's they, awesome. Um, the one lady that manages like the whole, like oversees the whole thing, she's the one that like we have a Google spreadsheet um, and she'll just plug everybody's money in and then um, we just like deduct it as the competitions, you know, as they pay for the competitions. Gotcha. Gotcha. So, I mean, it, it really helps um, a lot of families make it more economical to go to these competitions. Mm -hmm. That's great. That's great. Because it, it does, it does add up. It does. So as studio owners and as, and as educators and as mentors, we talk a lot about our values and, and leading our decision making with our values in mind. So what are your values, your core values at your studio and how do you lead and train and compete instilling those values in your students? Well, if I really think about it, my values that I try to um, run my studio by, it's team, respect, and work hard, work ethic. And, and I, I try to tell these girls that the harder you work and the more you put your mind down to it, that the outcome will be better. And, and like I said before, I, I really make it clear to my girls that if you don't win, then you just need to work harder. Don't make mm -hmm. excuses, don't make excuses. Don't, you know, bring drama and, and it's nobody else's fault but your own. And, and, and that's with anything in life. I mean, you have to take responsibility for yourself. And as long as you work with the team and it takes a village, you know, it, it, it takes a village to make you better. And- Right, and like personal, personal responsibility like you have to take your own personal responsibility yep. to the team as a whole. Yep. And and the thing is, like, especially in this day and age, everybody tries to push off responsibility on everybody else. You know, mm -hmm. it, it's it's their fault. It's it's this no, it's your fault. And I, I mean I think we need to teach these kids that and, and really show them that, you know, all the benefits, if you take responsibility, you work harder and so much more things will come your way. Yeah. And, and I really think, and, and just staying positive about it. Drop the negativity, you know, drop the drama, and you'll have a better life. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, and you know what? And that's something that they will need to know for the rest of their lives. Because even, even in, like with all of us owning a dance studio and dance studio ownership, you know, I always say it takes a village to run a successful dance studio. You, you can't do it on your own. You know, you need to have your team. Like, mm -hmm. and, and that's the thing like that I instill in my competition kids. You need your team. Just like I need my team in order to have a successful dance studio. You need your team in order to have a successful competition dance. Right, you need to be responsible for your part of that team, but you still, you can't do it on your own. Right, and, and yeah. what makes a stronger team working together and learning right. how to work together. I love that, that's great. Well, Holly, thank you so much for joining me today. I really enjoyed talking to you. Great, thank you for having me. Yay, well, before we go, let's share what made your heart happy this week, Holly. No, oh, what made my heart happy? I went paddle boarding. <laughs> oh, nice. I know, that was like a new purchase during like the COVID shutdown. And I love it. We have a local lake and I go there and it's so relaxing and so peaceful. And it's kind of like, that's been my Zen of getting back to all this craziness in the world. That's awesome. I've never done paddleboarding. Is it hard to stay balanced? I don't think it is. But I don't know, maybe because we're dancers, we find it easier. <laughs> right, yeah. I just, I just picture myself falling off the paddleboard every five seconds. <laughs> I, I have to brag, I have never fallen off. <laughs> Good for you, Holly. That's awesome. Yeah. I, I love paddleboarding because like, I've done it. You know, I've, obviously, I love to travel. So I've done it in like lots of different places and I love it. That's so cool. Good for you. Let's see. What's my heart happy moment? Um, 
Oh, well, I, I, I just hire two new staff members um, at my studio, and one of which is going to be my only front desk person, and she's going to be my customer care specialist. And so she's been, I've been training her this week, and she's been making phone calls to all of our families to introduce herself. Um, and she just, she's so enthusiastic and she's really like excited to be a part of the team and part of the family. And, and I'm excited for how she's already taking ownership of the role. And I think it's going to be a really good move for us. And I'm really hoping that it's going to boost our enrollment as well. Yeah, that's definitely, that's definitely key to have somebody mm-hmm. that you could, you know, share responsibilities with and, and even to have right. somebody to bounce ideas off because, you know, your team has great ideas and yeah. Yeah. And I've, and I've, I think in the past couple of years, I've gotten a lot better at leading, leading confidently, but also consulting my team. And that's a hard balance. Cause I think at, at first when I opened my studio, I was like, I am the leader. I am in charge. I must have all the answers, you know, but, but you hire your staff because they know what they're doing and they might know what they're doing in in their specialty a hell of a lot better than you do. So you have to consult them, you have to take their opinions and ideas into consideration and you know support their opinions and ideas and that's how you can be a better leader. So I always feel like if I give my staff like if I give them a say in like when I'm running the studio and if they come with me with ideas, I'm like, that's a great idea. Let's let's run with that. You know, it makes them feel that that their viewpoint is you know valid and that they have a part in running the dance studio. And I think it, it right. definitely makes a stronger team. It it Absolutely. makes a stronger dance studio. It makes you look unified to all your students and your parents, and that's super important. Yeah, absolutely. And for them to feel some ownership about what they're doing is so important. Before we go, you mentioned the membership, our membership. Can you talk a little bit about about that again for our listeners um, who might be considering joining? We're closing for new members at the end of September. Is that right? Yeah, the end of September, we're going to be closing the membership um, until I think it's next spring. Then we'll have we'll have so, open again next spring. But so if they sign up, if they sign up for the DSO Connect membership, what do they get? Every month we offer a masterclass video. We have lots of templates. There's done for you social media. Um, we talk about topics like marketing. Uh, we talk about customer care specialists. We talk mm-hmm. about you know ideas for like summer um, revenue, different revenue ideas. Uh, bookkeeping, like basically any topic that we all run into as dance studio owners, um, we like to take and break down and give you ideas and give you, you know, a plan of action that you can, mm-hmm. you know, use at your dance studio to make your life easier and to boost your enrollment and boost your revenue. Yeah. What I also love in the membership is our our task calendar which is basically, okay, in this month, you need to be working on and thinking about these specific tasks. And and it, what it's helped me to do is to delegate because I can, instead of like thinking of the, oh God, crap, I have to do that and it's at the last minute, I have this task calendar and I can look at you know this project or this task and then hand it off to someone on my team a lot easier than when I just think of it at the last minute and then I have to do it because I've procrastinated and I'm not organized. <laughs> I know. I love the task calendar too. I feel it really gives me a good kick in the butt. Cause like, exactly. like said, I used to be that one, like at the last minute I'd see something online, like, Oh crap, I should have had, I should have had an open house. And then I'm running around the last yes. minute, like open house. And you know, it, it doesn't make you look like a good leader. <laughs> right. It makes you look like you're scrambling and, and it makes you feel like you're scrambling and that's not a good feeling either. Right. It, it totally makes yeah. you feel like you're a chicken running around with your head chopped off. And yeah. And, yeah. and the things like, yeah, the task calendar, I always look at that, you know, the beginning of the month and, you know, line up my social media posts and I line up, you know, all my tasks that need to be done. And like you said, it's so much easier to delegate it to the appropriate person 
that can get it done. When you have it all lined up out in front of you. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. What I also love about our content is, and this is perfect for this conversation, like you and I are so different as studio owners and our studios are so different. And DSO Connect is six different dance studio owners and we're all so different and have different perspectives. So when we create this content, it has so much more uh, information in there because it's like the six of us putting our heads together and coming up with great ideas for everybody. So even if you don't, maybe, maybe you don't relate to my studio as a non-competition studio, maybe you relate more to Holly's studio, but you're going to find ideas that'll work for you because there's six of us contributing to it. Right. And, and also, I feel we give a lot of actionable plans that you can just take it and change it around and then use it in your dance studio. Like I don't like when I have to think for myself and come up and recreate the wheel. <laughs> it's like just yeah. something so I could do easy and done and why recreate the wheel if it's already done for you. Right, exactly. And so if you sign up for the DSO Connect membership, you get all of this great content and it's only how much a month, Holly? It's $27 a month. Yeah, so I'll bet you can, you know, skip Starbucks drive through a couple days a week <laughs> and afford your GSO Connect membership. So how do people sign up? Um, you can find on our website, uh, dancestudioownerconnect.com. There's a membership button and you can just sign up there on our website. Great. All right, Holly. Well, thank you so much for chatting today. I really appreciate it. And um, I think it's, I love talking to you because our studios are so incredibly different. And I just, I just love getting your perspective on things. <laughs> oh, thanks. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you again, Holly. It's been a treat to chat with you. And I hope that everything goes super smoothly as you start your classes this fall. Thanks, Casey. I hope things go well for you too. Yeah, fingers crossed. Say a prayer. We'll see how it goes. <laughs> okay, bye. All right. Thank you, everybody, for listening, and we'll see you next week. Bye.